scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. This is the word of the Lord. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Mandy, for reading, Kirby, for leading us in song. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, and again, good to see uh, your beautiful faces and be able to sing uh, Christ's praises together this morning as we uh, prepare our hearts to hear from his word. Well, in the Sears household, uh, we try to gather around for dinner most nights. I mean, we eat every day, but we we try to get everybody around the dinner table, and sometimes that's a challenge with uh, sports going on when those are heavy seasons, but we we try to have that family time, guard that family time to be together. Uh, And not only do we uh, gather because we need to eat and have a a good meal, uh, but also we use that time to uh, read scripture. Uh, We're working through the Bible. Uh, We're kind of on a three to four year plan that will get us through the whole scripture. Uh, And my hope is that our kids have heard the Bible read to them at least twice before I kick them out of the house at 18. So that's the the plan. Uh, We not only read scripture, but we recite memory verses and we work through basics of doctrine. Uh, We use the New City Catechism, which uh, we put those questions actually in the home devotion guide. And, and we go over those and have a, a question a week, which uh, they recite, and then they give an answer, and it helps them learn doctrine. Now, unless you think that our house is just this perfect uh, solitude of devotion and great worship around the table, um, their distractions are incessant. Uh, there are giggles, there are the banging of silverware, the spilling of cups, uh, we've added a dog into the mix, sometimes there are flatulence. You, you name it, it happens around our dinner table and, and you can be having this great moment of splendor and glory and praise of Christ and it all be ruined um, with just a, a comment or, or something else. Yet we press on. We press on. And, and oftentimes after we've read or we've discussed something, I'll ask questions, probing questions, to try to um, help them think more clearly about what they're saying. Because uh, our children, if you've worked with children, they're good at memorizing, good at hearing the stories, but not like, well, what does it mean? What does it mean? And you, you ask that question, and you, you might realize they just because they said it doesn't mean they actually know what it means. And sometimes I'll ask pointed questions, particularly towards salvation. And I'll say, who died on the cross for your sins? Or who made it possible that your sins may be forgiven? And, and, and usually one of the children will say, God. And I'll be like, that's right. But I want you to be more specific 
And then they'll look at me and they're like, oh, it's God, right? And I'll be like, so I'll follow up with questions. What's his name? Jesus. I was like, yes, Jesus is the name that I'm, I'm, I'm working at. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get some precision. And so <clears throat> is their response necessarily wrong when they say, God brought forgiveness of my sins? Well, no, but it's not really right either. It's not really right. They need to be more precise. In our passage today, Jesus is going to be asking lots of questions of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. In fact, he's turning the tables on them. Uh, If you've been with us over the last several weeks, uh, the religious leaders have been peppering Jesus with questions, trying to discredit him, to entrap him, to try to some way get rid of Jesus. Well, they haven't been successful. And so Jesus says, I have a question for you. He's turning the tables on them. And his question on the surface is rather simple. He says, I got one for you. Whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Messiah, you might put it that way? And I imagine the Pharisees were like, come on, of David? He's David's son? Gave a, a simple, you have a simple question, we have a, a simple answer for you. He's David's son, duh. You know, you can just imagine them kind of snickering. What kind of question is that? And like my children, they're not necessarily wrong. They gave a right answer. But it's not exactly right either. It's not precise and so Jesus follows up with another question. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, he's, he's David's son. Well, then tell me this. If he's David's son, why does David in the spirit call him Lord? It's a passage of scripture apparently they must not have thought much about. I have two boys. I have five children, but two of them are boys. And I have lots of names for my boys, Um, Sometimes I'm like, hey, dude, come over here. Sometimes it's, man, come on. Sometimes it's, hey, buddy, let's do this. But I'll tell you, one thing I never call my sons is sir or master and certainly not Lord. No father calls their son Lord. But David calls his son Lord, Jesus says. David calls his son Lord under divine inspiration, and and he quotes here Psalm 110, which Pastor Nathan read for us. And what Jesus poses to them, he says, so how does that work? Unravel that mystery for me. It was a simple question, right? He had a simple answer. Well, tell me, how does this work out? In what sense, he says in verse 43, In what sense that if David calls him Lord, how is the Christ? How is he his son? And brothers and sisters, this is the question that is pressed upon us this morning. This is the question that is going to be brought to us. Whose son is the Christ? Whose son? And this question is actually going to force us to articulate who Jesus is. And generic answers aren't going to do. Jesus wants specific answers. Because as he will warn us later in Matthew 24, there are false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets who are going around and saying, hey, I'm the messiah. 
There's many people, brothers and sisters, who claim to be Jesus or claim to worship Jesus. But they have generic answers. And the Jesus they serve isn't the Jesus of the Bible. So you can't rightly love Jesus, can't rightly follow Jesus, you can't rightly worship him if you don't know who he is. And while Jesus doesn't explicitly answer the question for us here, he, he rather leaves us hanging here, doesn't he? He doesn't answer the question. It just says that no one was able to answer him a word, and it's just like he just walks off, leaves them in their ignorance. And so while Jesus doesn't explicitly answer the question for us, this question has been answered throughout the gospel. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, this question has been answered. While the Pharisees don't know the answer, we're like those watching the movie who, who've watched the whole story. And we're sitting here saying, he's the son of God, dummies. Come on. But they don't know. They don't know. We have the answer. The Christ is not merely the son of David. He's also the son of God. And with this implied answer, Jesus says, how can this be so? How can the Christ be son of David, a human son, and the divine son of God? And so leaving that question out there, it teases us. It invites us to come in this morning and answer the question, to think maybe harder than you've ever thought about who Jesus is. And answer it ourselves. How is Jesus David's son and the son of God? And that's the question I want us to answer this morning. I want us to answer how Jesus can be both the human son of David and the divine son of God. Because knowing Christ, brothers and sisters, is our only hope, right? Knowing Jesus is your only hope for redemption. And it's not only our only hope, it's the only hope of the world. And if we're going to pass on the hope of the world, not only to ourselves, but to our children, to the next generation, if we're going to have everybody who comes to this church know who Jesus is, we have to be able to point them to who he really is. We have to be able to articulate who Jesus is, that he's both man and God. And half answers won't do. If we don't know who Jesus is, brothers and sisters, how can we follow him? How can we love him? How can we enjoy him? How can we worship him? We can't. And so this morning, first of all, what I want us to see is that we must confess him as the human son of David. We must behold Jesus. We must confess Jesus. We must believe in Jesus. We must trust in Jesus, first of all, as the human son of God. Now, for us to understand the significance of this statement, he's the son of David. The Pharisees are right in one sense. They are right. He is the son of David. But for us, we're, we're not Jews. That, that really doesn't get much traction, right? If we were to be going out declaring in the streets, guess what? Jesus is the son of David. People would be like, who cares? That really has no significance to anybody, right? But it is significant, and we need to be able to understand it so that we can communicate it to others. 
We need to understand the significance of the statement that Jesus is the son of David. And to do that, we need to remember the Old Testament promises of redemption. The Old Testament promises of salvation. That is, the Old Testament promises, the promises of old, that, that, that God would free humanity from sin and death forever. Now that gets traction in the world, right? You want to be freed from death? You want to be freed from guilt and shame and all the corruption in your heart, the evil thoughts in your heart that you know are there? You want to see evil eradicated in the world? Well, then you want to hope in the son of David. Well, who's the son of David? We need to be able to tell them. And this is the hope. The hope that has been there from the beginning all the way back in the garden as Adam and Eve were kicked out for their rebellion against their creator. The hope that there would be a child, that redemption would come, salvation would come through a child, a son of Adam, if you will. And that hope comes down to another man named Abraham. And what has he promised? A son. A son by which his promises will come. There will be a son of Abraham. And then there's the promise of a son to come to David. All these promises are really the same promise, just being reiterated. There's going to be a son given to you. A son is going to come. And these promises of redemption, of a saving king, culminate in this promise to David. David, I'm going to give you a son, and he's going to sit on your throne forever and ever. And this is the promises that God gives to David. They're really threefold. Number one, I'm going to give you a land to dwell in, a place to live, a place that is flourishing, a place that is wonderful, a place that is absolute paradise for you, a land of your own to dwell in. Secondly, in this land, you're going to have peace from all your enemies, every enemy that you could ever think of. You're going to have peace. We just sang grace and peace, right? Oh, how can it be? There's going to be peace in this land. And three, you are going to be ruled by a king who's going to make sure this kingdom lasts forever and ever. Now just think about this. This promise of a forever kingdom, what does that presuppose? There's no death here. Kingdoms that last forever, with a king who rules forever, death has no reign, right? Death is not in the picture. You must be freed from it. And so when we come to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, when we come in here and we're going to hear about the hope that is, that is ours in Christ, what is the opening line of the Gospel of Matthew? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David. It's like all the promises are here. The son of David has come. And we go into it, and Mary is to give birth to a son, her very flesh and blood. People would have looked at Jesus and said, you look just like your mother. Because he was her son. And his name and his purpose would be that he would come to save his people from their sins. Now, when we think about Jesus, we, we rightfully think about him as divine and God, and we should, and we're going to get there. 
But we don't so much think about Jesus being a man, being like us in every respect without sin. We don't think of him like that. Last night as I was writing my sermon, working on this very point exactly, my son Andrew comes into the room and he's like, hey dad, what you doing? I'm like, what I do every Saturday night, I'm working on the sermon, I'm getting ready for, for Sunday. And uh, he said, oh, okay. And I said, hey, I got a question for you. Whose son is the Christ? And he sits there and he thinks. He's like, son of God. That's right. That's right. He is the son of God. He says, is he anybody else's son? And I could tell the wheels were really turning then because he's like, is there something else that I should have said? So he's the son of David too, right? And he goes, oh yeah. So how's that work? And it was all over from there. I was like, I have no idea. I have no idea. We work backwards, right? The Pharisees are working from the assumption that the Christ is human. We work from the assumption that the Christ is divine. It's both, okay? It's both. But we're working backwards. And so where I'm pressing here, Jesus is wanting to say, oh, there must be more to this human king. I'm wanting you to say, there's more to this divine king. I want you to see that he's human. He's the son of man. We have to have a human savior, brothers and sisters. Just a divine savior will not do. We must have one who is made in every respect as we are, or we'll be dead in our sins. This is how the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and through 17. I think we have it on the screen. <laughs> the writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, meaning we're human, he, that's Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He goes on, he says, Therefore he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Did you realize that? He had to be made like you in every respect. <laughs> Why? so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's a big word, make satisfaction for the sins of the people. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to understand about your Savior, that Jesus, though he is God, in the incarnation he added humanity. He took on flesh. As John says that the word, the eternal word was made flesh. Jesus, brothers and sisters, assumed. He took on all that which he would redeem in you without losing any of his divinity. What, what do I mean by that? When Jesus became a man, he became every sense of which he would redeem. Jesus is the God-man who, who did not cast off his deity. He didn't cease to be God, but he added a human nature just like yours and mine, yet without sin. 
You can have a human nature and not have a sinful nature. Sometimes people say, well, it's just human nature to sin. Actually, no, it's not. Humans have fallen, and now we have a corrupt nature. But human nature was not to sin. And so Jesus, in this way, is both truly God and truly man. He is one person with a divine nature and a human nature. So what does this mean? This means several things. First of all, Jesus did not cease to be God when he became a man. Jesus didn't cease to be God. But neither did he cease to be a man when he ascended to heaven. Jesus is still human. Did you know that? Still flesh and blood in a glorified sense, though. He's a resurrected human. He's a glorified human. But neither should we, in some sense, see Jesus as a mixture of God and man. He's not like a mixture. He's not like Superman, okay? He's not a a blending of, of God and humanity. No, he is both divine and human. In the incarnation, God the Son took on a human nature without losing his divine nature. And without mixing the two. It's not like a blender. Little divinity here, little humanity there, boom, God, man. That's not how it works. Jesus is one person, but with two natures. One divine and one human. I know that's heavy lifting, right? Last week, Jesus told you to love the Lord God with all your mind, right? We're having to love with our mind today, right? Having to engage it a little bit more. And what's important for us to realize, and we cannot downplay, is that Jesus is truly human like us. And if he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to redeem us. But because he was human, he was able to redeem us through his death, burial, and resurrection. For if there was any part of Jesus that was not fully human, well, guess what? He couldn't save us who are fully human, right? If there's any part of him that was not truly human, he did not take or become like in the incarnation, then he could not rescue us. That's why, guess what? The fallen angels are irredeemable. Jesus isn't an angel. He's a man. And he came to save humanity. If he was going to redeem the angels, he had to be an angel. What elements of humanity do we see throughout Jesus' life in the Gospels? Well, there's many. We sometimes recite the Apostles' Creed, which reminds us that he was born of the Virgin Mary. And and Mary was in the line of David, so he fulfills literal prophecy that that David's son, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, would be born to him and sit on the throne. He was born in the city of Bethlehem, Matthew tells us. He was raised in Nazareth. Elsewhere, the scripture says he, he grew in wisdom and stature. Like Jesus had to learn how to walk. Some people, uh, uh, I've heard professors say this, that, that thinking about Jesus and his humanity, I could probably beat Jesus in basketball. Because he didn't know how to play. Now that might bother some of you. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, he had to learn like you. He stumped his toe as he was walking. He fully experienced life and learning. 
Isn't it like Jesus just had all languages downloaded to his brain? He's human. He had to learn. And he grew up in Nazareth. Guess what? As a human, he was tempted by Satan, just as you are. He was tempted. He suffered hunger. He was hungry and thirsty. He was weary and tired. Your Savior had to take a nap. There were times that he was exhausted. He said, I, I got to go. I got to retreat. I have to rest. He had emotions of compassion, sadness, anger, righteous anger, anger without sin, but he had anger. He has to pray to God the Father. He even admits he has limited knowledge about the returning of the Son of Man. On that day, no one knows, not even the Son of Man. One theologian put it this way, Christ on earth was a pilgrim, not a comprehensive knower. He walked by faith and hope, not by sight. Sometimes we read the Gospels and we're just like, yeah, Jesus, it must have been easy for you. No. In his human nature, he is walking just as you do. In dependence upon the Father in prayer, dependence upon the Holy Spirit, Jesus in his humanity experienced and suffered betrayal from his closest friends. One totally denies him, the one, the other just denies him in a moment, but either way, they leave him. What pain that must have caused him. He suffered crucifixion. He suffered the abandonment of his father. Even death itself he experienced. I love what Jariah Packer writes. I have this for you on the screen. Jerry Packer says, his human experience is such as to guarantee that in every moment of demand and pressure in our relationship and walk with God, we may go to him, confident that in some sense he has been there before us and so is the helper we need. Our Savior is a human Savior, he, and we confess him as the human Son of God. But of course, he's not merely human, right? That's only half the equation. And so we must also confess that Jesus is the divine Son of God. If you come back to our passage, if you left it, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. This is a Psalm of David. David is declaring in, in, under divine inspiration. That's what he says. Why does David say in the Spirit? He's talking about those prophets of old who are carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Well, David's one of them. And so everybody would have assumed that this had the authority and weight of God himself. And David confesses that the Christ... The Messiah to come is greater than him. In fact, he says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, just, just a little bit of technical jargon here. The first Lord is Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, Master. But both are names and titles given to God. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This is the king who's going to bring peace to the land. He's going to bring, as we know, peace to the earth. He's going to put all his enemies under his feet. 
Now notice he says something here, sit at my right hand. If you were to sit at the right hand of a king, you were to be um, in, in, in every respect his, uh, bearing his authority. This person at my right hand, I am investing the authority of my power. And so whatever that person says and does, you must take it as verbatim from the king himself, you might think of. Well, David says, this king is going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh himself. Which begins to open up categories. Oh my word, he bears the same authority, same essence, same power as God. This is what the Lord himself even alludes to in his promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Already in the promise to David, your son is going to be my son, God says. I want you to see this. The prophet Micah taps into this theme as well. In Micah chapter 5. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, and this is away, the city of David, but you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one, there's a person, who is to be ruler in Israel. Okay, so come forth. There's, there's the come one, and you're thinking, oh, a child is going to be born, right? But notice, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What's going on here? The one who is going to come forth already is. He's more than a man, isn't he? The Messiah is more than the son of David. He is the divine son of God. And so when, as we think about Jesus and his relationship to the other divine beings, we need to understand that he is distinct from God the Father and God the Spirit, but himself is fully and truly God, sharing the one divine nature with the Father and the Spirit in all their glory. And we see this throughout Matthew's gospel, don't we? This is the, the rest of the story that we've been watching and observing and seeing through this whole story, and these Pharisees have no clue who they're dealing with, right? They have no idea that he is the Son of God. The demons do when they arrive, right? They always know he's the Son of God. But so do we. So if we go back to the beginning of the story, yes, he's born of the Virgin Mary, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? His very name, Jesus, do you know what Jesus' name means? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Names have meaning in the scriptures. This is Yahweh who is coming to save. And he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. At Jesus' baptism, what, what is declared from the heavenly voice, God the Father says, this is my beloved Son, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come. Now, now, there's that Micah language, the one who will come, which presupposes he's coming from somewhere where he's already been. He's eternal. Jesus, even throughout his journeys, going from town to town, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing people, he accepts the title of Lord. 
He accepts those who bow down and worship him. He doesn't say, no, 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 only worship God. No, no, he receives it and it drives the religious leaders crazy. He performs miracles by merely a word, just like God who spoke the world into being. Jesus can speak and raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, heal the the sick. Jesus demands complete loyalty and worship from his followers. He rules the storms. He can calm them just by a word. He forgives sins, which only God alone can do. All authority has been given him from the Father. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He can multiply the loaves as if he is creating bread out of thin air. He transforms right before the eyes of Peter, James, and John and reveals his glory in all its splendor. He promises that he is going to come again and he will carry out the judgment upon the world. He rose from the grave with the divine authority in heaven and on earth. And guess what? You and I are commanded to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the the names of the triune God. Matthew has been telling us all along he is more than just the son of David. He is the divine son of God. So how is it that Jesus is both human, son of David, and the divine son of God? Because Jesus, the eternal son of God, took upon himself the very nature of humanity, the flesh and blood of Mary by the creative work of the Holy Spirit so that he might be the true child of David and become like us in every respect, yet without sin. That's the answer. This Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, preached in Galilee, and was crucified outside of Jerusalem is far more than a man, brothers and sisters. He is the eternal Lord, the living and active one who from the first moment of history created all things and is rightly named the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Is he not worthy of your consideration? Is he not worthy of your love? Is he not worthy of your trust? Is he not worthy of your obedience? Is he not worthy of your worship? This is Jesus the Christ, our Lord, our God, and our Savior. And I tell you that through faith in him, guess what? You'll not only gain a brother, but you'll gain your Lord and your God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you have commanded us to believe in Jesus. You've commanded that we would flee to no other refuge, that we would wash in no other fountain, that we would build on no other foundation, that we would receive from no other. Jesus' water and blood which poured from his side, they were not severed in their flow at the cross. And so, Lord, we pray that they may not be separated from our confessions and our experiences Lord, I pray that we may be equally convinced of the guilt and pollution of sin, feel our need of a prince and a savior. We implore of him repentance as well as forgiveness. 
that we would love holiness and be pure in heart and have the mind of Jesus and walk in his steps. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask that we would not be at our own disposal, but that we would rejoice that we are under the care of the one who is too wise to err, too kind to injure us, and too tender to crush us. Lord, may we cause no one to stumble by our temper and by our conduct, but that we would recommend and endear Christ to all around us, bestowing good on every person as circumstances permit. And that we would decline no opportunity to serve. Oh Lord, help to guide our affections with discretion, with discernment. To owe no person anything. To be able to give to the one who has need. To feel it our duty and pleasure to be merciful and forgiving. And to show the world the likeness of Jesus. Lord, that's our prayer. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.